Once you touch, you change. All that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. God is change. Hi, I'm Adrian Marie Brown. Hi, I'm Toshi Regan. And this is Octavia's Parables. And you are joining us for chapter eight. We are reading the parable of the sower right now in order. So we recommend that if you have not um, start from the beginning, you know, start from our first episode and catch up with us so that you'll be aligned. And just a couple of little announcements we want to make. Um, want to drive for folks to pick up the parable of the sower graphic novel from Damien Duffy and John Jennings. And to check out the Octavia Tried to Tell Us webinar series from Tanana Reeve Du and Monica Coleman. And always uplift the um, Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network. And in case this isn't clear by now, we just we reserve the right to spoilers <laughs> because we are really trying to go through um, this content in a detailed scholarly way. So this is either listen to this because you want to know what happens next and you want us to tell you or you already read it and you're ready to analyze it. So uh, Toshi, will you read our the chapter eight opening earth seed verse? Of course. To get along with God, consider the consequences of your behavior. Earth seed, the books of the living, Saturday, July 26th. 2025. Mm -hmm. And this chapter, um, something, you know, last chapter, chapter seven was so full that I don't think we even mentioned that Tracy Dunn had gone missing, who was um, basically a few, a few chapters back, Amy Dunn was killed. And so Tracy has been depressed um, since, since that time. And now she's gone missing. And so when we start off this chapter, and Toshi, maybe you can give us a, a summary of what happens in chapter eight. Yeah. I mean, it is so much going on in this chapter. And <laughs> yes. Tracy Dunn is missing. And that is a, a big deal uh, in the community. Um, Tracy Dunn, you know, as we talked about in the earlier chapters, uh, a, a young, I think still te teenager who um, had a child. Amy, um, she was raped by an uncle, I believe. And, yeah. um, and Lauren really had a, a kind of a special love for Amy. Like, I mean, she was just like kind of mm -hmm. neglected by her family. And Lauren taught her and kind of took her in. And she's the first person who gets shot from a bullet outside the wall. And so it's, yeah. it's a big sign of like, you know, an escalation of activity. And then that Tracy is now missing. Um, Lauren mm -hmm. just decides that people who are missing, they don't come back. Um, yeah. They vanish outside. And she says um, to go outside is uh, a week outside is a week in hell. Yes. Um, the other things that happens, and we have a couple, um, Bianca Montoya, um, she's 17. She's pregnant. And there's um, these families inside of the cul-de-sac community inside of the wall. And there are pe all kinds of people 
there, there's not one race of people. There are all kinds of people inside of this yes. community. And so Lauren really talks about how problematic it is when different races hook up that like, yes. so this, she doesn't understand anybody in terms of the beef that comes out of it. Yes. Like, like it becomes yeah. a thing. So we haven't like really healed our racism yet, even in the worst of situations. No. And, no. um, and she also really thinks about like, why are people trying to like have babies and get married? She just doesn't get it. <laughs> she, she has a lover and she's like, that's what I have a lover. And it's almost irrelevant if she loves this person or not, she knows that her trajectory trajectory is not to get pregnant and marry this person. Um, yeah, she says one of my favorite lines there, which this has actually probably shaped a lot of my adulthood. <laughs> but she says, if if getting married to her lover Curtis and babies and poverty was all she had to look forward to, I think I just killed myself. <laughs> I wrote that like, down. Her, <laughs> I it always struck me because I'm just like, oh my goodness, like short of the poverty part of it, what she's naming is what so many people kind of hit that wall. Like, especially if you've been trained or shaped to think that marriage and a baby was going to give you happiness, Mm. Um, that it's like, oh, marriage and a baby, you know, maybe, maybe that will give you happiness. Maybe it won't. Um, But there's also something about being caught or oriented towards something larger than yourself or larger than family or larger than um, even your period of history that drives her. And that I think for a lot of people also drives them that even if, you know, and I I think for most people I know that are in love and that have families, they'll also say that like that is an incredible part of life. And also there's the things that I'm creating or the organizing I'm doing or the books I'm here to write or other things that give life meaning. And But in this time, the question takes on a heavier weight because it's like we're bringing children into a world that we know is in a state of escalating climate catastrophe. And we're bringing children into a world where we know that there's not really a response to the growing rates of poverty Mm -hmm. um, because the poverty is induced by um, policy decisions that have been made to construct this inside outside have have not extremism. So the question, you know, it feels really relevant for us now too. Is like I feel like everyone who I do love for is like I feel selfish and maybe it's not even fair to the kids and I feel this and I feel that and in spite of all that I'm going to have this kid. Right. <laughs> you know, as opposed to like, oh, we're giving the kid a world better than than we had, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it is a it is a question for people. I mean, the other part of it is like, you know, people arrive and meet the time and mm-hmm. you you do need somebody to meet the time. <laughs> so, yes. um, exactly. you know, somebody has to come and meet the time. And I, all of the I, I do remember I don't know if this happened to you, but I remember being being young and being in like uh, high school. I would think it was high school, but like ninth grade. And um, the person from the nuclear power plants came to talk to our school about nuclear power plants. And we was already woke and we had a Quaker school and we was woke about nuclear power plants. And so we were just like, you know, this is the worst thing that anybody's ever thought about. And so somebody (laughs) said, like, when he's describing all of the, the stuff that power plants do, 
you know, um, I, this girl gets up and she's, she's crying, you know, and she's like, oh. she's crying and she's like, Hey, who's supposed to deal with all this waste? You know, but she's saying it like, you know, angry, good, angry tears and, yes. and a very clear voice. And, um, and he says, well, like, that's for you all to figure out. Literally, <laughs> Yeah, okay. he literally said that. And we went ballistic. Like, we just started screaming at him. Like, we just started yelling at him. We, like, you wow. know, just like, I don't know, we, could, we tore it up. And, um, and I think there's this way of, like, you know, disconnect. And I don't think this is just for people who have, who have babies. It, to me, it's not. I love I love mm-hmm. young people so much. I love babies so much. Like you had them, but they mine. And <laughs> so yes, I'm like I have fifty babies. I'm like yo, I have so, so many like, babies. But it's a dis- yeah. it's a disconnect. Like to not have all of the conversations and to not like structure your life and the reality of where you are, and to not like yes. understand where these new people came from. And the kind of support and openness they need in order to do what they came here to do, and yeah. so if your your way of like constructing a world for young people, and this is like is is to not really be ready for them to be who they are, like then you're kind yeah. of then those those are the things that don't like actually work, right? Because they're gonna come and see the world and be like, oh, I was born here. And yes. the rest of us can be hysterical because we've watched, you know, 50 years go by and we've seen this, but they've seen like 10 days, you know, right. 20 and days, just like, okay, 30, you know, stuff pivots very quickly. Yeah. And I think there is something around, like, I think about what Octavia writes is the compelling future. Yeah. Right. Is like, what makes the future compelling? And for so many of us, um, the framework we've been given is like, there was something more compelling in the past than there is in the future. Like there was some good old days or things used to be a certain thing. And I think there's something really interesting in this moment because I feel like in this moment, people are like, oh, like anything that seemed like it was good was still built on shaky ground Mm -hmm. because since the foundation of this country, there have been these problems growing in the soil, this patriarchy, this white supremacy, this racialized capitalism, this uh, disrespect for Mother Earth and not cultivating the relationship there. Like these, there's these things that are like, these are just fundamental aspects of how we have gone about nation building and they're catching up with us. And so to me, it's like the most compelling time for humanity, I hope, is still in our future. Right. Right. And I hope that it's something where we're able to reclaim what what indigenous teachers around us are trying to show us and tell us about being in right relationship with the earth and with each other. Uh, but we're able to do that in a multiracial, multicultural way that we're able to do that in, in a world where there is a ton of difference also. Yes. Um, and I feel like part of what Lauren is wrestling with in this chapter is like how much difference is survivable. Like, you know, she's like, I love, Curtis, I like Curtis a lot and I, I have my family and we do things, but we're really different. Ideologically, we're very, very different. And is that who she can build a compelling future with? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 
So what else happens in this chapter? Ooh, well, we... This is... Yeah, I love, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so they go on target practice. And, oh, yes. Um, and this is like the... They found a corpse again. And they find another body. They find right? another body. And they're with um, Ara Ma- Moss. And Ara mm. Moss is... Um, uh, I think a daughter of Richard Moss. Yeah, I was like, is she one of the? Yeah, she's Polly. Yeah, she's. I think she's a. Family. She might be a daughter. Aramas okay. is like, um, she's going on this this practice, and just to refresh, that Richard Moss is the you know a, a guy who has some wealth in the community because he actually raises rabbits. And he has um, multiple wives. He has a lot of kids. Mm. He's also one of the people that makes the community vulnerable because he leaves the community with his rabbits to sell his rabbits outside of the gate, um, which draws attention because don't nobody outside of the gate have have anything like that. Like so, it's he has his own kind of religion, African based, mixed Christianity, mixed from all of these places um, to kind of like, uh, I don't know, lift uplift his masculinity and position in the community and probably is a little jealous or combative with Reverend Alamina. So uh-huh. he's, he's that person. Yeah. And um, his daughter goes on, on the, uh, the target practice and they see it's rough. And they see mm-hmm. the body and she is like, I'm out. I'm out. Like, I don't want to. She's like, I'm not doing I'm this. not doing this. Mm. This is not for no, me. No, that's not going to be me. This is not going to be for me. And Lauren right away is like, no, girl, like, you got to do this. Like, yeah. you need to. Well, and Lauren has such a sense of responsibility, right? Yes. Like, Lauren's whole thing is like, you may not want to do it. That actually isn't the important question here. Right. Like, what if someone attacks your family? Right. Yeah, yeah, you need to protect yourself. You need to protect your people. You need to protect. But there's an interesting thing that happens here where Lauren's dad um, says to her, you know, you should have tried to talk to her a little bit later after the yes. the memory and after she had gotten a chance to digest everything. So yeah. it's there's this, you know, wonderful relationship between Lauren and her dad, uh, part yeah. of it where he's not saying no to everything she's trying. He's, he's also trying to teach her like there are ways to communicate to people who are having a mm-hmm. hard time following your path. Um, yeah. So that's a, that's a cool, uh, that's, and I, I love what he's basically saying about fear as an organizing tactic, mm-hmm. because I think so often, you know, this is what we've tried to do with climate for years. It's like if we just terrify people with the information, yeah. <laughs> then certainly they'll figure out like that we need to change everything. And then it doesn't work. Like fear is not actually, you know, when people are in that state of deep fear, that's not that's not the time or the best way to organize them. And I love just that wisdom. You know, I love that Octavia had an understanding of that. Yes. Um, in writing this and that she gives it to the father to pass on that actually they have some things in common. You know, he sees her capacity to lead yes. and to comfort, and he wants to, you know, help her do that well. Yes. You know, she's gone to target practice before, and she makes note 
that in the little bit of time between that there are more and more people in a very uh, severe and horrific state of being human um, oh, around yes. around her, which means like as the time is going on very quickly, um, she just is like they're, they're skeleton people. And they are, yeah. they're in very, 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 very rough shape. And she talks about how they're always looking at them when they see them come yes. for their target. They're at such a high level of living compared yes. to the people who are outside of the gate that they can't be not seen. And um, yes. we talked about earlier how they, you know, try to dirty their clothes and things like that. But they're healthy. They're riding bikes. Yep. You know, they're not yep. really fooling anybody. And exactly. <laughs> they come yeah. from somewhere and everybody knows it. So she can't, she, you know, <laughs> she really is like, I can't get out of my mind those, the way they stare at us. Um, yeah. And, uh, and then... Which feels relevant. It feels very relevant. <laughs> that feels really relevant to me. You know, I think that, I think about that actually a lot in our, in movement spaces, how there's the folks who kind of will slum, you know, um, that don't want people to know how privileged they are. And uh, have you seen this phenomenon? <laughs> you know I have. That? And we talked about this earlier because it comes up, yeah. it comes up a few times, you know, in this book. And yes, it feels really important to me that I'm like, you can see and feel class difference. Yeah. And the people who can see it the most are those who have the least. Yes. You know, it becomes very apparent. Um, all right. But we covered it. I trust you. Oh. Um, I don't have a memory. So I'm like, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it's not that it can't be covered again. I mean, <laughs> like, it's an important issue. Like, you, you want to yeah. say something, go on. Well, mostly I just want to say there's something about authenticity in it, right? That she's coming into an authenticity of understanding her privilege. Um, and that each time she leaves out the gates, it's like, okay, this is what we have. And even with everything that they have, it's still a state of total panic and like fear. And she's trying to figure out how to navigate it. But just that understanding that like there's always someone who has more need. And can you orient yourself around that and figure out what your relationship to that is? Um, and I think about that often right now that, you know, we can get into such a competition of needs, um, which isn't actually that helpful rather than really getting like, can I see clearly what's happening and where I am related to those around me? Yeah. And I, yeah. I think also, I just know I, when we got shut in at the beginning, um, yeah. I remember like the amount of fear I had just because, um, we were, we came back from, um, LA and from doing parable in LA. And so I had been yeah. with a lot of people. It's like later and later on in that week, we start to like, hear like, these are the things that really are bad. And I had done almost all of them, you know? So I had oh, like, toast. yeah, <laughs> I, I have been lovingly, you know, slobbered on and kissed by, I'd like probably 200 people the night we oh, did wow. parable and, um, and I was in a big, you know, I was in a room constantly with other people, um, more than yep. 10. I went out, um, uh, to some restaurants. I hung out with friends. I hugged everybody. Um, you are a hug. I hugged the cast. They weren't telling us not to hug yet. So it was like, you know, oh, yeah. we were still close to each other. It was in a hotel, like you name it, I did it. And, um, and then when we get, got home, uh, and our family made our, you know, our COVID plan of how we we're going to be. It was like we stopped being in, in calves. Now we're going to stop really 
going out like we're gonna really try to be in and just go out to get exercise and I really thought about what is a necessary leaving you know and so I thought about parables so much because they were like target practice work that's necessary and you know work what if you have to go work and then there was there's probably baptism baptism um there's probably some shopping things you might Mm -hmm. have to do trade or trade Mm -hmm. marketplace but it's like very few things but there's still things you have to do you have to leave and Mm -hmm. what was what was necessary and I was trying to think like now my my particular street was super quiet it's like a lot of um residents and there's a church up the street that was closed and so it's very very quiet extremely quiet there was almost no cars um and that made it like feel weird to go outside (laughs) that it was so quiet yeah but I was like well what if it was really hard to be outside like could you like how would you leave your house how would you go somewhere else how would you what was the system what is a system you have to create to be able to know that you were going to go someplace and see things you didn't want to see and that they were going to see you. Yeah. You know? Yes. Yeah. And I think this piece around like, oh, seeing people who are sick, you know, that's one of the things that's been so interesting about the pandemic is like, you don't really see it, you know, like you can hear someone cough sometimes or something like that, but it's not like your people are walking around and you can be like, oh, that that's COVID. There it is, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And, as opposed to this, which is, oh, you can really look and be like, those those folks are suffering. They're, they're doing bad. And what I think is so interesting is, especially for those who live in New York or in big cities where poverty is actually visibilized, but we just get used to not seeing it. Um, so, the, you know, I think about this often where I was just, I spent a little while in Hawaii and I was on the west side which everyone, as I was going there, was like, oh, whoa, the west side of, you know, like of Oahu, like that's hardcore. And what I found was it's it's what I find in any city, like the areas where I, I find myself drawn to are often the places where folks are sex working and where folks are homeless and figuring out life in other ways. You know, I think of it as where the survivors gather, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but you do see stuff where you're just like, oh, this person is probably hungry. You know, if you, if you look at how skinny this person is, um, you might be able to infer that they're using, you know, substances or you might be able to fit, you know, to, to feel your way into like, there's some suffering happening here or some struggle, some work happening here and, um, and just homelessness in general. And where people are like, I am homeless and I am asking you for help. And I am sitting here with my kids on the street or I am telling you that I'm a refugee, that a lot of this actually just exists right now. And we already have been numbed to seeing it. And now we're just kind of adding things to what we numb ourselves to, if that makes sense. Like, it's not like we're not ever operating in the realm of the numb. Yeah. It's that we've already decided who goes on the outside of that, that numb wall in ourselves and um, yeah, it, you know, I think so much of the awakening of like being human again is saying like, I'm not going to numb myself to the suffering of those around me. Um, and then it's like, yeah, but how do I survive if I'm not numb? How do I still function? Yeah. You know? Well, you know, I think that's where, you know, I, I probably mentioned, you know, Ruby sales before when we had our live, oh, yes. you know, our, um, Instagram live thing, yeah, but that's where did. Ruby 
Ruby uh, Sales says, like, you, if you try to, like, take the whole thing, you'll just start to, like, shut off your mind because it's too much. But if you really, like, say to yourself that there is one thing you can affect or two things or a way of being you can affect, then do that. Like, make that particular contribution um, so that you can have a relationship, right? So that your mind is open and your heart is open and the part of you that does hard and intense labor is open and you can have a relationship to something because otherwise you'll, you will not be able to do anything. You'll turn inward. And that is to understand that that is a, a strategic intention by people who are oppressors, which is to overwhelm you with, you know, suffering to overwhelm you. Like all of this, none of this stuff has to happen. You know, but it, it's yes. not like magic <laughs> that, you know, it is exactly it is intentional circumstances um, by the system that all of us contribute to. We all contribute labor and money and participation into the system. And then we have officials in positions of power who are supposed to make decisions that like support our living and breathing and being um, alive on the planet Earth. And it has just been the hundreds and you know, thousands yes. of years of betrayal by that system. So, well, go ahead. Exactly. Ex- well, I was going to say exactly. And I think that's where it's like right now to just feel at all can feel like a hyper empathy syndrome. Right. <laughs> right. So like if, if I open myself up, so, you know, recently there's been two killings, um, one for Oluwatoyen Salau, and one for Elijah McLean, both of which were really, really difficult for me to turn and face. And both of which I went through my initial pattern of like, I won't look. Now I'll look. Now I'll read. Now I'll let it in. Mm-hmm. Now I'll let it sweep over me and kind of envelop me. The fear of it, the pain of it, the heartbreak, the grief of it, the stranger grief. And um, and letting myself feel it. And it feels like hyper empathy just to let myself it open up just slightly mm. to how painful it is to live in a time when such things could happen. Yes. How sli- how painful it is to live in a time where, you know, looking at the number of deaths from the pandemic and knowing that the majority of them were avoidable. Yes. How painful that is. Right. So just to feel it all feels like it's hyper empathy. Like it's like, oh, you know, how can I how can I numb myself enough to stay functional um, without um, without losing touch with being alive in this moment and and with the data of grief and the data of fear, right? So like Aurora's fear, you know, I don't want to do this. And it's like, okay, but if that makes you defensive, then that's not actually good for your survival skills. Right. You can be afraid. We're all afraid. We're all afraid, but we're trying to be afraid and use the data of our fear to make the right choices for ourselves. Yes. I, yeah. I love the way you say that. And um, another thing I want to uplift about our contemporary time and the reason why, you know, leadership has to be intergenerational is the way that like, you know, these people are our ancestors now. And yes. I can't help but think about, you know, the long road of our ancestors that were stolen, um, that were mistreated, like that were violated um, in every possible way um, for so long. 
And I feel like this generation, uh, multiple generations now, with such an incredible awareness of how important it is to not let anybody go that you're aware of. Like, I I have never before, because it's not like, you know, what we're discovering now is that this brutality has been happening within, you know, the uh, police departments all over the country. And this brutality is, has been happening. And as soon as something is found out, it's like it happened a year ago, but guess what? It's current to us. Yeah. Cause we're, it's current. We're right. We're mm-hmm. in right relationship with our ancestors. And we got, what, what did you do? Like exactly. <laughs> we are going to hound you. you know, right. In some ways, in some ways it, it's almost like what happened to, for instance, Elijah McClain was so horrific that we needed to be post uprising to take it in, to take it on. Yeah. Like the uprising has shifted what what kind of calls we make and how people respond to our demands. Yes. And like we are changing the conditions. You know, it's like right now we're able to harness our grief and our fear and our rage into these massive pivots forward. Um where it used to be like, you could never imagine saying defund the police. Now it's like, it's happening in multiple cities. It is. is. Policies are being passed to defund the police. Um, At the same time, this chapter is really about that terror, right? Mm -hmm. The terror of being a parent, the terror of being a community member, and having to watch your children growing up in a world where you know you cannot keep them safe. And that when they walk outside of the space that you, you know, the the gate or the wall or the fence, you know that you can't keep them safe and you have to pray that they'll make the right decisions. Yes. And I think about the book, uh, uh, Danny McLean, my dear friend, put out a book this past year called We Live for the We. Mm. And it has a whole portion in there about that. It's just like what it means to parent a black child in this day and age and how do you handle the fact that you know that you're parenting a child in a world that is actively looking to to kill your child, to take your child? Mm-hmm. And and then how do you deal with someone like Keith? Yeah. Right? So <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about Keith? Yeah, I would love to. And I have to say, I, brother. Yeah. I call this chapter the for parents, you ain't in charge. <laughs> like, yeah. You ain't in charge. And Keith is, you know, yep. about to turn 13 years old. And Keith is just yeah. like in every way, way past the, you know, whatever the structure the dad created yeah. to keep, you know, a balance of harmony in the community, but especially with his own family. Keith is like a million miles down the road. Like I'm not about it. Keith, um, who is the oldest of three brothers, um, leaves, uh, goes out, comes back in, um, loses everything, all of his clothes, uh, clothes are very expensive. He's bloodied and he's beat up and, um, he has lost the key. He actually stole the key to the gate and he lost it. And that's such a big deal because it's not like you can instantly get keys replaced. Um, the whole community has to galvanize around a watch because they know that someone can open their gate. And this is something that just infuriates Reverend Alamina um, in multiple ways. And you can kind of see all the levels stacked up. One, that Keith disobeyed the rules 
two, that Keith stole a key and left. Three, that Keith like lost all his clothes. And then four, that Keith lost mm. the key. So the dad has all of these, you know, ideas around when you can go and do different things. And one of the things Keith really wants to do is he wants to go outside. He wants to go yes. on target practice. He wants to have the same freedom that Lauren has. And um, in the opera, like I wrote so many things for Keith, but my mom wrote the song, I want to go outside. And literally when yes. we did, did, did that song last time during the <laughs> pandemic, people like lost their minds. They were like, this is mm -hmm. our song, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. but Keith, um, Keith is just <laughs> like coming to his original form and such an, um, I can't, you can't even really call it like he's being a kid. Like his purpose mm -hmm. is just his own purpose. And it's very, very yeah. aggressive, very violent and very, um, doesn't have a lot of time for no's. And, um, yeah. that's one, that's Keith. But the other thing is just the dynamic in the family. Um, there are two, there are three, there are three brothers and there's Marcus yes. and there's, uh, Benton and mm -hmm. there's um, Corey, um, Lauren's stepmother and Keith's mom yeah. of the other three kids. And Corey, Keith is her like diamond child. That's her. That's her baby. That's her baby. That's like of all the kids. That's that's her her that's kid. Hers. That's that's yeah. hers. So you get this kind of precious, super gooey you know, relationship between Corey and Keith. And then you get this like Reverend Alamina being like, no, we have to do things in this certain way to protect yes. them and to keep them strong. And Keith has like two more years, two more yes. years yeah. and he's losing it. And um, so Keith. Which I felt like I had so much more empathy for <laughs> after a little bit of pandemic time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, Keith is edgy in a way that at any time is just, you're like, mm, watch out for him. You know, like Careful, he just yeah. is a certain kind of guy. And um, they give him a, a BB gun that he can, sh there's a shared BB gun that all the kids have. And so they let yeah. him use that and he shoots at squirrels and, and shoots at birds. And it just is not enough not good um one no. of the things i i wonder i'd love to ask you is like when do you change your system because it's actually not working mm. you know when do you decide like what do you make an adjustment because even though you created something right for this 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 uh when do you realize that somebody doesn't actually fit into your infrastructure like age like he's like, no, age, mm. age is a thing. 15, mm. that's the number. But when do you yeah. like go, what, uh, when do you look at the way things are going and, and change your system in order to, yeah. to get a different result than what's happening? You know, this is one, I, I would say that this is um, an area where I'm constantly trying to learn and improve. I'm a notoriously slow adjuster personally. Um, I tend to be like, no, you know, we'll try to work with, however people are. And um, I was just watching the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. I loved it. And it was so beautiful. I, I enjoyed it a lot. And But one of the things I particularly enjoyed in there was watching the coaching dynamics. And 
how the coaches had to account for um, someone like a Dennis Rodman on a team with someone like a Michael Jordan. And, you know, at what point do you know you're like, I'm adjusting for different ways of being great versus I'm adjusting for um, something that actually isn't a good fit. And so in this scenario, it's like, oh, Keith is actually not culturally a good fit to the safety culture that they're trying to create here. Mm-hmm. And he's been raised inside this culture. So, you know, he's 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 known all along, like this is kind of how it does, how it goes. And, and he has a hopelessness or an apathy in him, which I think is actually really important for us to talk about because I, I see this all the time is, and I think of it as that collective suicidal ideation um, where folks are just like, I don't care. I'm just going to go outside. I'm going to just go take these risks. And I just kind of don't care. Like I'm going to put myself in the way of danger. It's more interesting than trying to go by all your rules. And in some ways, I'm not going to believe in these rules. And to me, I think the thing I'm trying to learn is to get faster and faster at recognizing that tendency that is like, oh, this person is not able to move towards life. And it's not necessarily about um, staying in an ideological argument with this person. I need to figure out how to liberate them, like liberate them into their own choices Mm -hmm. Um, that you can't actually control all the choices. And I just finished watching the 100, which um, or I'm mostly done watching the 100, which is one of these sci-fi shows. And they have a whole exploration of this. It's like, what do you do when people are like, we've tried surviving for a long time and we're kind of, we've lost our hope, you know, Um, we don't see the point in this. And to me, this can happen, especially with young people, especially in a time of hardship, where it's like, if we're not making a compelling future, then how do we keep arguing with people to participate in saving themselves over and over again for diminishing returns in terms of the joy of life? And Keith is, to me, exemplary of that. Like, there's one level at which he is having discipline issues, but on another level, it's what Grace Lee Boggs used to talk about is like the it's not the dropping out, it's a walkout. It just looks, it just shows up in a different form because mm-hmm. this is what, this is the politic that the person can practice in. And I feel like this is, Keith to me is like the warning bell, like something we have to be so conscientious and, and careful around is like, if we're not careful, we're not going to create futures that are compelling enough for our young people to want to be careful with themselves, to want to understand how precious they are and stay, you know? Yes. Yes, that uh, that's right on. And I think I mentioned before um, the first person to play um, Keith in the opera, Curtis Cook. Um, mm. He said Keith and Lauren are, are trying to do the same thing. He's like, they're trying yeah. to get out of where they are. And he really made us yeah. have empathy for Keith because we're like, Keith is psychotic. And he's like, no, he Keith. he wants to. <laughs> yeah. and it, And it made me think how. Um, I don't know if you experienced this in your family, but there's always like, I, I had to do this. There's a time I was so like in a different vibration than my mom. Like mm-hmm. I was ready to do things like that. She was not ready for me to do. And I had to leave yes. the house. Like, you know, one of my friends was like, why don't you just, why mm-hmm. don't y'all have a break, you know, and you come and stay yeah. with me. And, you know, my mom talked to her mom. I was like 14 or 15. And mm. I spent three weeks with my friend and then, you know, and I worked it on out like, but in the state that they're in, 
I was like, you know, yeah. what would it have meant for Reverend Alamina to actually just take Keith outside? Like, take him outside. Right. <laughs> take him somewhere. Take Like, go do it. Yeah. Like, take him to work with you. Do something. Like, what would it have meant for him to, to think, okay, what's better? Um, this, this, you know, ends with, uh, chapter ends with Reverend Alamina giving a Sunday sermon and... You know, he's like, honor thy mother and thy father, or it's probably honor thy father and thy mother. But that's where he, Mm -hmm. that's as far a movement he could get towards, you know, which uh, clearly is not good enough. Well, and I think what you're saying is so important. It's like, at what point do you recognize that if the world outside has changed, then what it means to be a child also changes. Mm. And that you can try and protect childhood to a certain extent, but then it's like, how do you partner with what you're, what the person that you're raising is actually experiencing and actually calling for and asking for? Right. Um, and then what do you do with the rage? Yes. You know, cause that's the other thing that I feel in Keith is a righteous rage. Like this isn't right. This isn't life. I shouldn't have to be stuck inside like this. This is abnormal and I'm furious about it. And I see that in a ton of kids right now, yes. <laughs> you know, that are just like, why is this? What, what did y'all do? Why am I having to live like this? It's not fair that I should be running around in a mask instead of going to prom. And I'm upset about it. It's not fair that I have to, sh- have to be around my parents day in, day out. It's unnatural. I want to go outside. Yes. And I get it. You know, I feel like that she just does such a beautiful job of capturing this dynamic of what those limitations feel like and how, you know, a prison can, can pop up at any point. Um, when your freedom is limited immediately, then you have entered into that kind of state and what that feels like to different people and how long they can, they can last in it. You know, that is the, that is the same thing. You know, Lauren is the same way. She's like, we're not meant to just be right here. We're meant to actually go very, very far, (laughs) you know? Um, so, yes, let's see. Keith, he slips out. He got beaten up. He got hurt. Like, he actually really had, you know, a first kind of soul-shaking experience on, in the outside world. It was, yes. it's not a good thing, you know? Um, it's not a good thing at all. And yeah. I think, again, we get to track these family dynamics because he, you know, Reverend Alamina actually goes and looks for him. Yes. Um, and tries to find him. And he gets, he comes back. And when he comes back, he is, actually, I don't know if Reverend Alamina looks for him on this one. I don't think it he looks for the, him yet. I think he looks yeah. for him on a future time. This time, I think he doesn't look for him. But then Keith comes back and he's been beaten up by like five guys. They took he's all been. his stuff off of him. He's in his underwear. He's like in his underwear. He's bleeding. He comes home like the way that you never want to see your child coming home. You know, imagine your 12 year old walking in the door like this, right? So it's like, I never want to see this. And he, you know, he's like, I want to assert myself as someone who doesn't have to be afraid. And his father is like, how could you be so stupid? Like, literally, you are an idiot, right? So it's just like, oh, you know, from, from hindsight or 20, whatever, it's just like, oh, Telling someone they're stupid is never the way to, you know, meet someone who's just gone through that kind of traumatic experience and make them feel home and safe and belonging again. 
but that's the state that they're all in, right? It's like the adults can't adult here. Everybody is exhausted and terrified and Mm -hmm. just trying, trying desperately to keep each other safe and changing conditions. Yeah. Corey really um, shifts into this, like, I have to protect my son from everybody. Including his dad. Yeah. And including Lauren, where Lauren is like trying to help. But Corey looks at her like she beat him up (laughs) and she's like, okay, you know, it it's it's that thing. Like when you don't have the capacity, just as you said, to do your work that you know how to do that, you just, you know, you know, you're supposed to take deep breaths like, you know, that you're supposed to negotiate like a wrong thing happened and like, let's all get together and think about this and how to process this. Yeah. And let's realize that we're, we're on the same team and yeah. let's relook at what this is, the, the cause of this. I mean, it's all of this work, but as you say, like there, nobody can function at their highest level because they're of the state that they're all in. And so it becomes yeah. like, you know, what's the basics that you can do and which is a fallback on your like very raw, you know, way of being. Your reverend yes. becomes like the uber reverend. <laughs> yes. You know, it's like about the key. The book. Mm-hmm. Just do do this and do that. <laughs> like, and then Lauren, the visionary, you know, is just sort of like, okay, like I'm going to keep deepening into my verses here. And Keith is like, I'm going to keep fighting more and more rebellious ways to move out into the world. And Corey is you like, know? I'm going to try to protect my son and go into super mother mode. Yeah. Everyone becomes almost a caricature of themselves. So as we're <sighs> moving to the end of this chapter, which I think, um, you know, so much has happened in here. Um, and, you know, I think fundamentally this chapter is really about how fear shapes our actions how it shapes our our sense of self and that fear makes us run, fear makes us hunker down, fear makes us scream at each other, fear makes us fight for each other, fight with each other. And, you know, in this, in this book, um, which I think the thing that is the deepest parallel to this moment is that you start to recognize that no one is safe, like that no one can keep their children safe. And it doesn't matter as much if you're black or white or Latino or something it doesn't matter um, because now everyone is in danger. So I think one of the biggest questions coming out of this chapter is really sitting with yourself and sitting in community and looking at how does fear shape you and how does fear shape your actions in this moment? Um, And really understanding it like, oh, I'm not outside this fear shaping. I might just process it in a different way. what does it look like if I say I welcome fear as a part of how I am <laughs> feeling right now? And what does fear want to tell me? Yeah. Um, I think another question for this chapter is, you know, this piece about ideological alignment comes up. And I would love for folks to reflect. Would you say that you are ideologically aligned with or ideologically opposed to the majority of the people that are in your immediate family, community, and geographic community. And this, you know, the pandemic has made this like so relevant that it's like, oh, if I'm in the family house, if I'm quarantined with someone who has a highly different set of values around this and, you know, maybe is a, is a Corona denier or something, it's really going to have impact on me. And 
in the same way in this book, it's sort of, it's, it's saying that like, if you're around people who want to go outside when outside is not safe, it's going to impact the whole family. Um, so really assessing for that. And then I think the final question I'll ask here is how do we support young people to grow up and make a way for themselves in increasingly unsafe conditions? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that is chapter eight of the parable of the sower. Um, join us next week for chapter nine. Right on. There's a new world coming. Everything gonna be turning over. Everything gonna be turning over. Where you gonna be standing when it comes? There's a new world coming. Thank you for listening to our show. Octavius Parables is hosted by Toshi Regan and Adrian Marie Brown. It's produced by Kat Aaron. Music for Octavius Parables podcast. Always see the stars written and performed by Toshi Regan. There's a new world coming performed by the cast and musicians of Octavia E. Butler's Parable of the Sower, the opera lead vocalist Shana Smalls. Written by Bernice Johnson Regan with additional lyrics by Toshi Regan, both based on the novel Parable of the Sower by Octavia E. Butler. And our show art is by Krista Franklin. You can find us on Twitter at OParables and sustain our show by becoming a patron at patreon.com backslash OParables. Please share this podcast with anyone you think it would be useful for. So be it. See to it.